Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Right, everyone, welcome back to the show. Today um, in New Books Network, we have um, the one and only Kirsten Powers of her new book is Saving Grace, Speak Your Truth, Stay Centered, and Learn to Coexist with People Who Drive You Nuts. Kirsten, or Kirsten, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much. I'm so glad to be here. Um, first of all, I'm just really excited to have you on the show today because I met you through following Lisa Sharon Harper and the Ally Tour, which was a one of the most uh-huh. incredible experiences so for those. Yeah. She's so great. And for yeah. those of you who don't know, I say go go follow these women and check out any of the resources they have on hand. Um, for the rest of our listeners, I wonder if you could begin by just telling us a bit about yourself. And since this book seems a little more memoir, maybe start telling us about who you are and, and what set this up for you. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I live in Washington, D.C., but I was raised in Fairbanks, Alaska. So I'm very, very far away from home. <laughs> yes. And I, I work in the media. I'm a senior political analyst at CNN. So I do on-air uh, political analysis. And I write a column for USA Today, where I write about politics and faith and culture. And mm. um, this book, book really did grow out of my experience of being a person who was in the public eye, living this day in, day out, um, you know, on TV, through writing, unfortunately, with too much time on Twitter. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And, and in that way, my experience is a little different, because it is a little different when you're doing it in front of millions of people. But it's also very similar when I talked to other people that I think the feelings I was having were very similar to the feelings other people were having uh, after the 2016 election. And that just kept gaining steam for me. And I think by 2018, I was so burnt out. I was just exhausted. I was so just in a rage all the time. I was miserable. I was physically sick with chronic fatigue and fibromyalgia and anxiety and all the things that I think a lot of people can relate to. And I just hit a wall and I realized like, this just can't go on. I can't, I can't go on like this. And, and I also realized that a lot of my, I'd say some of my behavior, but a lot of what was happening internally for me in terms of how I was thinking about other people and the hatred, honestly, that I was feeling um, was not in alignment with what I said I believed. And I am a person who's, you know, pretty open about the fact that I'm a Christian and I believe in loving your neighbor and even loving your enemies. And I, was so far away from that, that I just, I can't even, there was just a chasm, you know, between what I said I believed and, and, and how I was operating. And so I just realized I need to bring these things into alignment. Oh, yes. I love that. And we get that sense from you right off the beginning. Um, 
in your author's note, especially you start by setting the stage of this book and you even, I really appreciated how you led us into this, um, almost like a looking backward at our own history and looking to those who led the civil rights movement. And you say, um, they talk about Jesus and a Christianity I recognize, one that hasn't been distorted or destroyed by the need to dominate or control. And I'm just curious, can you talk to us a little bit about that statement? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, well, I I talk about in my book that also what was happening for me was uh, I I was was actually getting pretty far away from my faith uh, because of other things that were happening in the culture in terms of just the behavior of Christians um, certainly, you know, voting for Donald Trump and supporting Donald Trump and, um, but also, you know, the institutional behavior of how badly churches had behaved. I'm Catholic. So, you know, lots to be mad about there. <laughs> um, and, and so I, I really was feeling very, um, disengaged, disconnected. And I, when I spent time reading, you know, MLK or John Lewis, or I interviewed um, Ruby Sales for the book, um, and and when they would talk about God or Jesus, I'd go, yeah, yeah, <laughs> that that's that's what I think, and um, and and it wasn't this uh, domination-driven narrative, which. Unfortunately, I think if a lot of us are honest and we look at ourselves, that a lot of what we do when we're when we're being toxic and when we're you know contributing in a toxic manner to culture, it's because we have absorbed this idea that dominating people is good, right? And it, and it's that dominating and dehumanizing and demonizing um, that somehow shows that you're strong right? And that you're standing up for what you believe. And yet, here were people who didn't do that, and who actually impacted culture in a serious way. And, um, you know, and and had a faith that I, I could relate to, right? It was something where I could say, yeah, like, yeah, I would like to have that. I would like, I would like to do that. I would like to do things that way. Now, I'm, I'm never going to be MLK, like, let's be honest. Mm. <laughs> um, <laughs> right. But I, you know, but to have that as kind of a touchstone that you that you look to and go, well, that's at least the direction I want to be moving um, is a very different orientation than where I was when I when I started this book, or when I got to the place of even thinking about this, I didn't even want to go in that direction. I didn't even care because I really had bought into this idea that like, no, what this moment calls for is like brute strength. Right. Um, and that doesn't mean that, and I, and I spent a lot of time in the book talking about what grace is and what grace isn't. That doesn't mean that, that, that you shouldn't be strong or that you shouldn't speak up for things um, uh, that, that are, that are happening and and speak out against them and stand up for people who are being marginalized. It it doesn't mean any of those things. Um, It just means how you do it matters. And, and, and it doesn't just matter for the other people. In fact, in many ways, it matters less for the other people than it does for yourself. Because it's why, you know, hate, hate is too great a burden to bear, right? It's that's about you. That's about the, what hatred does to you. And, and so that's what judgment does to you. That's why well, you know, every world religion tells you not to judge because it's toxic. It, it's harmful to you. 90% of the time, the other person doesn't even know that you're judging them. 
Oh it's, my gosh, right? right. So yes. it's it's not that like, oh, don't judge other people because it's going to hurt their feelings. It's don't judge other people because you, it's going to hurt you because you are now going to become, you know, so entwined with them and their stuff and their beliefs versus being discerning and looking at them and saying, this is a problem. Now, what am I going to do? Um, and how am I going to respond to this with humanity, but also with clarity? And and be and 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 speak up and say what needs to be said, um, and and hold people accountable when they need to be held accountable. But it's that's very different, I think, than what we see a lot in our culture. Hmm. Yes, and I find it. What I loved about your book was your, I guess the phrase was the thickness of grace that you talk about, especially coming from a Christian perspective. A lot of times. As a woman, even we can hear that grace needs to look a certain way. And what you did was mm-hmm. really demystify it and put flesh on it and strength on it. And I'm just curious, like, what were the influence or were there people that were influences or experiences that helped you really decide what grace was that you needed to bring to your book? Oh, yeah. I mean, I interviewed so many people. I talked to so many people. And that that phrase actually comes from a, a theologian at Yale Divinity School, Willie James Jennings. Um, and he's, you know, uh, the foremost, he, you know, I don't know if he's the, he's a foremost and maybe the foremost expert on liberation theology. And, uh, and, and he, he's the one who came up with the, that phrase, the thickness of grace. And, and, and the point of it is that it's substantial, right? It's not this, some people think of grace as this kind of light, like airy sort of, you know, just be nice and just don't rock the boat and like, you know, that, that kind of, you know, behavior, but that's, that's not grace. That's enabling, right? That's, um, that's not what grace does. Grace isn't, you know, grace is if I, to use the Christian paradigm, it's unmerited favor. And so that's an orientation. If you use that towards other people, if your orientation towards other people is that you deserve grace, no matter what you've said or done or believe or who you voted for, that's grace because it's unearned, right? It's not anything you've done. In fact, it's for the people who you really, really don't like. And he even says it could be for the person that you hate, right? That's the point. It's it's like Richard Rohr says, you know, loving is not liking, right? When we love people the way Jesus loved people, which is agape love from the Greek, that's a love of humanity. That's not like I love chocolate or I love my mom right? That's a very different kind of love. And so when you when you have grace for other people, and you look at them and say, I see the humanity in you, even though you are really making me angry, you know, you are really, um, I really don't like you. And I maybe I even hate you. And, and so I think that, of course, the place that we would all love to be is loving everybody, but but I'm being realistic. And, yes, yes. And for a lot of people, going from hating large swaths of people to being just neutral would be like a huge accomplishment. <laughs> uh, you know, so it's like, if that's where you get, at least you're there and you're not mired in the hatred, right? It's, it's not, so you haven't gotten to the point where you love them. Okay. I mean, fine. But at least you're at a point where you're not just sitting there stewing in the juices of hatred, which is what I was doing. And, and again, guess who it was harming me? <laughs> you know, it wasn't really harming anybody else. Mm, 
And I just loved how in your book, you really were honest about that. You were not trying to avoid it. You were really direct. Like, this is how this was toxic for me and it was hurting me. And um, I would love you just to talk a little bit about, um, since we're going into more of the complexity of humanity, maybe talk about Richard Rohr's hyperdualism and yeah. like how that evolved for you so that you could see beyond just the black and white. Yeah, I, that was a major turning point for me because I had always seen things in a very binary way. And which is why a lot like, like the me of three or four years ago, listening to the me of today would be like, what a bunch of bullshit. <laughs> you know, because I would just be like, no, it's either this way or it's that way. You know, either the person is the person's doing this, they're bad, you know, and it's like, I couldn't really see uh, com- complexities very well. I couldn't see grays and I, I just saw things in a very, very binary way. And I, I learned later and I learned first through Richard Ward that this was highly problematic and it's something that most of us do in this culture. Um, and that, you know, that there, there are actually often many different ways to see things. There are some things that are absolutely clear, right? Racism is clear. Misogyny is clear. But when we're talking about a person, they're much more complex, right? When, and so, and, and, and often the only thing we even know about the person is they just did something, right? It's, we don't know a single other thing about them. And we make them into the thing they did. And so it's not that um, they're that. And there are some other, other things as well. And let's just talk about this thing they did rather than turning them into the thing that they did. And so it's seeing people in their total, in their totality. And it's recognizing that people, you know, that people are doing the best they can with what they have. And, um, and that many times in your life, you have done, you have hurt people, you have let people down, you have harmed people, you have believed harmful things, you have said harmful things, trust me, you have. And, and that, and, and that you were doing the best you could, right? I mean, I think we can see it when we look at ourselves, and say, well, I, I didn't know any better. You know, I, that's at the time I'm, I cringe. It was bad, but I, I really didn't know. And so, so, so giving people that grace, you know, cutting them that slack in the sense of saying like, you're doing the best you can, which does not mean, and I always have to say this over and over that you're not, you are still accountable for your behavior. Yes. You know, it, it doesn't make you not accountable. It's just that if you're seeing a person through that lens of grace, the accountability is going to be more humane you know, and hopefully it'll be more healing, it, not just for that person, but for culture, right? So yeah, so it'll actually be something that could bring some wholeness where brokenness occurred, it, that it's not just punitive, that it's restorative, right? And so I feel like grace is what helps us get to that place, because sometimes, you know, that's not an actual inclination. And so but if you can kind of I call grace a practice, right? Like someone has a yoga practice, like I have a grace practice. Um, and so I have to like stop and go, okay, in, in, a, in a grace mindset, how would I see this? Because it's not always going to be my natural inclination to go in that way. So, so Richard War was the one who really opened my eyes to that. And then, um, and then I learned about how uh, people who have trauma, which is most people, um, tend to be even more binary. And that I, in particular, because of the particular trauma I had had, my, my binary thinking was a mechanism to make myself feel safe. 
So if I could just really sort everybody into the good and bad baskets, then I would feel safe. And I think a lot of people have that experience, right? It's, and so you're not, you know, your brain's just trying to keep you safe. It's trying to make you feel safe. Um, and so I then went and I worked with a therapist and I went and I did some intensive therapy and I really worked through my trauma. And when I worked through that trauma, I didn't need that anymore. So I just don't need that. That doesn't, in order to feel safe, like I feel perfectly safe saying, I don't know the whole story here. Maybe there's another way to see this. Um, you know, I, I, that doesn't make me feel unsafe. Whereas before it did make me feel really unsafe. And so, um, yeah. And so without encountering Richard Rohr, I don't think it's the idea of the both and, right. You can, you know, the idea, even within my faith of accepting mystery, I used to have to be like, you know, I I treated the Bible like an oracle, right. I would just be like, I'm going to find the answer and what's the answer. And then you're going to talk to this theologian, you know, and it's like, maybe I just don't know. Like, maybe I just don't know. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I love that response. And I wonder if we all just took a little more of that mystery, you know, how the world would change. That was so scary to me, you know, just to say, I don't know, or maybe I'll never know. Um, And that's okay. I don't have to figure it out. And, you know, it's like, I'm sure you've, I know you've, you've seen this or you maybe have even written it yourself. You know, it's just, um, you know, when people say like, I, I have, you know, I'm a Christian and I have the truth. And it's like, no, you have mm-hmm. an interpretation of the Bible. <laughs> yes. Oh my gosh. Yes. Right? It's like, that we yes. think like, you know, I like, y- you don't have anything other than an interpretation of the Bible that like, I can find you 10 other people who are just as smart and studied that have a different interpretation that disagree with what you're saying. It's like, it's just, that's your interpretation. Whereas I really was locked in this idea that like somehow I'd found the right interpretation. And, and I mean, it sounds kind of crazy to me now, honestly, <laughs> but, but at the time I, I needed it so much because of my trauma um, that now I look at it and I think, well, what are the odds that this little group of people <laughs> would have singularly figured out the truth of the universe? Like, pretty low actually <laughs> and also what are we missing out by having that staunch close-minded perspective you know yeah so much and it's just you know it, it, but when you're in fear you will you know you'll believe whatever you have to believe to feel safe and you know and i also discovered that that there are a lot of people cuz i attended evangelical churches right and and that's where i it was very problematic for me but I also know a lot of people who go to those churches and they don't do that, right? They don't, they're, they're not like, oh, I have to follow every one of these rules or I'm a horrible person or whatever. Like they actually have the capacity to go, yeah, okay. You know, like, and I didn't realize that people did that. <clears throat> I was like, you can do that. I thought you had to do all the things. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And so it was like, a lot of people were like, no, because you'll be like, but what about this on the other thing? And they're like, yeah, I don't believe that, you know? Yes. Which is, can be so scary if you're, you know, in that trench of, okay, well, this is all the answer and I have to do every single thing or believe all these rules. And then to come across someone who has a little more complexity, it's almost shocking and unnerving. Yeah, totally. And I, and I just, it really was this combustible mix of my trauma and then that theology like coming together and it just was like explosive, you know? Um, Whereas somebody else who doesn't have that, who has the capacity to accept some nuance, 
you know, um, isn't going to feel like they'll be like, ah, I, you know, I mostly see things this way, but in some places I don't. Right. And I was just so shocking to me when I met people and I really started exploring this, um, who would say, you know, ah, I don't really believe that. Yeah. You know, and you'd be like, what? Like, I thought you had to believe all of it. <laughs> yes. And your life is not in shambles. What? Yeah. Totally. Yes. Yes. Um, one of the things I thought was so unique about your perspective, what, and it probably is because of the work that you get to do, but you have this almost like a collectivist and more societal perspective. You take everything and it's not just how is this affecting me, but you even go on to say in one of your chapters, you say, what if we put the responsibility for so-called cancel culture where it belongs? on a society that refuses to change or listen until it literally has no other choice. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah. Um, Yeah. So I really struggled with the cancel culture thing because it's a really complicated issue. Uh, And I think, and I also should just say almost so-called cancel culture, because I, I don't think that that phrase really means anything because it means so many different things to so many different people. And, you know, I think that, but it is, it is this problem of when something happens and we, we see this happen all the time, right? We see this phenomenon where, you know, a person does something, um, let's say that a white person does something racist and then some people start complaining. Sometimes it's white people and with black people or whoever it is is complaining, but the injured party are the black people. Um, and the people who have been marginalized and harmed by society since the beginning of this country, right? And somehow in that story, <laughs> the white person becomes the victim, and the people who have been ignored and marginalized and discriminated against and abused become the aggressor. And it's like, there's something wrong here. Like, that's not like that. That's not, and that's not to say that sometimes, that's why I say this is a complicated issue because sometimes what happens to that person who's said the racist thing or the misogynist thing or the homophobic thing, sometimes it is, it, it's, it seems to me that it's disproportionate, right? It seems to me that it's not accountability, that it's annihilation, that it's, it's not just that they get in trouble or in some circumstances they lose their job because in some circumstances, unfortunately that is appropriate. Um, though I think it's in pretty extreme circumstances that that should be the case, but that's not enough. It's that it's that they have to actually never be employable again, right? It's that the reputation has to be just shredded and they're, they're just, they're irredeemable, right? They're rotten to the core. So, so that I think is a problem because I don't think that that's how you hold people accountable. But I also think that that the people who are calling this out and raising attention about it have been calling this out and raising attention about this literally since the beginning of time. I, I, I mean, there's been no point in the history of this country where black people have not been trying to explain that the way that they are treated is not okay. It's inhumane. It's discriminatory. It's harmful, right? There, there's no, there's no, at no point has that been the case. And so at no point has there been a case where women, you know, or at least like I would say in it, you know, I guess, I guess there was a point maybe where women weren't speaking up about it and there maybe, and there was a point where black people couldn't speak up about it, but certainly in the last, you know, last hundred years, right. 
people have been talking openly about this in my lifetime. They've absolutely been, you know, advocating for this, speaking out about this and, and, and very little's changed. It's, you know, things have changed. It's not to say that nothing's changed. It's just that a lot of the same problems have existed. And we saw that with police brutality, right? And, and, and to the extent we've seen things change, seen things change, it was because of Black Lives Matter. It was because of Me Too, which, you know, a lot of people would say are cancel culture, right? I mean, that's people are losing their jobs or living their losing their livelihoods and, and all of these other things. Well, if 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 society hadn't ignored all of these problems for so long, would that have had to happen? Like there's like they always say, like we could do this the easy way or we could do this the hard way, right? And like the easy way is to listen to people, listen to marginalized people, take their complaints seriously, believe that they know how to to describe their own existence and lives. And and like why why couldn't we why couldn't culture just have believed black people when they said this was happening with the police? Why does it only happen? Why do people only start taking it seriously when they see videos? Right? Like it's it's not this is not new. It's just on video. And so it's, that's the thing. We could have listened to people. We could have been empathetic. We could have fixed the problem and we didn't. And so now people are understandably fed up. And, and so to then gaslight people basically and be like, you're not complaining in the right way. Like, could you do that somewhere else or in a different tone? You know, well, you got somebody fired, so I don't support Black Lives Matter anymore. Right. It's like, what? Like, that's not like. First of all, sometimes, like I said, sometimes things get can get can be too punitive. But even as bad as that can be, you can't seriously tell me that can- cancel culture in quotes is worse than systemic racism. And yet, and yet, most of these people have never said a word about systemic racism, and they talk endlessly about cancel culture. And so it's like you treat cancel culture as a bigger crisis in our society than you treat police brutality, then you treat sexual harassment, that you treat homophobia, right? It's like, there's a problem here. And, and so, yeah, I say, what about having grace when they're saying that this person, you know, raised, you know, their, their complaints in, in a way that wasn't helpful. It's like, that would be a great place for you to have some grace. That would be a great place for you to look at that person and say, why did, why, why did they do that? Is it possible that they've, are tired of being ignored? Is it possible that they actually tried to raise this issue in a nice way, which they almost always did, and nobody listened to them? And you know, if you don't want if you don't want people to come after you to get you fired, then listen to them before that happens. Yes. Right? Yes. It's like right. don't be the society that will only change when, you know, when you have a metaphorical gun to your head basically. Right? It's like you don't it, it, because that we have set this up this way that the the only way people will listen is if they fear for their their job or they fear for or their stock price or their reputation of their company right so when you look at that it's like how are the people that are complaining the problem and it's not the people who don't do anything until their stock price is threatened right does that exactly. make sense yes yes and we have so much power as members of the community to be able to help create that change. And yeah. what I read in your book is we don't need to let it go that far. 
Like it's complex and we can start building the relationships and have these complex situations and leaning in with grace and making change. Yeah. Yeah. And like I said, and sometimes things do get out of control and sometimes innocent people get caught up in it. And sometimes the person, you know, maybe shouldn't have lost their job. Maybe they should have been suspended, you know, and maybe they should have been, um, you know, given sensitivity training and, you know, see if they want to be different, right? Do they want to be different? Are they sorry? Like there's, there's so many factors that that's the other problem with cancel culture. It takes a bunch of individual uh, instances that have almost nothing to do with each other and puts them all under the same banner. So a person who did something 10 years ago is totally different, doesn't believe it anymore, is sorry for it, wants to do better, is put in the same category as somebody who did it last week and isn't even sorry. And so I think from the other side, you have. To, we, I think we need to be able to have some sort of way of recognizing that the, that different cases deserve different treatment. And a person who really, you know, says, I, I don't know why I said that 10 years ago, it was stupid and I'm ashamed and I'm sorry and I want to make it better and, you know, and I, I'm willing to do whatever I have to do to make this right. Um, in that case, you know, there should be a way to kind of help them become that person and maybe become a model of how to change. Um, and, you know, but, but it's, it is such a complicated issue because I think a lot of times um, if you were to talk, like, certainly when I've talked with some of my black friends about these things, it's like, right. So that person, that white person who did something will get grace, but then the black person does something and there's never any grace. It's like, they're always held to a different standard. They're always the black kid, you know, who, makes a mistake at school, gets expelled and has his life literally canceled, right? And then the white kid does it and they get a slap on the wrist. And so it has to be a two-way street. It can't be, it can't be that, oh, we, we give grace for certain kinds of people, but for other people, we, we approach it with, a, with a, in a, a punitive measure. And so I feel like for people who, you know, if you're a cancel culture obsessive out there and you're listening to this, um, I... I think that you have to also um, show that same obsession about, for example, our criminal justice system, which is the biggest, you know, cancel culture in the world. Um, so you have to show that about, like I was saying, there's tons of social science on it. You can look up the studies about how the disproportionate punishment that young black boys receive, you know, how, how, how black people who are, who commit crimes are treated differently. Like you have to have that same passion across the board. Otherwise it just seems like you just care about people like yourself. Yes. Oh my gosh. So it's, 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 if you really care about people getting punishments that you think are too punitive, then you should care about that for everybody. Um, and so I think that, you know, it's natural for people to see people like them having, you know, something happening to them and, and they look at that and it scares them because they identify with it. Totally normal. But we have to go the extra step and say, you know, I can't just be looking out for people who are just like me and making excuses for people who are like me. Um, I have to be, you know, extending that grace to everybody. Yes. Okay, Chris and Kirsten, we are getting so close to time. So I just wanted to get one question in before you go. Now that your book is out into the wild, is there any one final thought that you want to give our listeners before they go and buy and support your work? 
Well, I don't know. You know, I have to say it's so vulnerable to have a book out, out in the world. It's just like, ah, um, because you do feel like, you know, I wrote this, this book and it was a very, very hard book to write. And, um, and I, and then you finish it and then you think, was that a good idea or a really dumb <laughs> yes, idea? Yes, it was. It was like, a great idea. <laughs> it's just going to say that. Yeah. But you know what I'm saying? Like you just really, mm-hmm. you really don't know. And so I guess yes. to a certain extent, and I, I say this in the author's note that, you know, I just hope people will have grace for me <laughs> um, because I, I know I didn't get everything right. I, I, you know, I just did the best that I could. Um, and I did work really hard on it. And I did talk to lots and lots of different people and lots of different kinds of people. And I tried to really, you know, work in different perspectives. But I'm sure that, you know, with a little time, I'm going to see, well, I could have said that better. Um, and so I really do want to hear from people and including people who who disagree, um, you know, and, and, and like I say in the book, you know, maybe with just a little grace. <laughs> yes. Oh my gosh. I love it. Well, thank you so much for your time today. I can just see your heart through it and I can see your journalist background a hundred percent. And I think it was so well done. Um, but we wanted to thank you so much for being on the new network today and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Thank you. What a fun.